Test, 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 maybe. Okay. YouTube, this is for YouTube. I love you guys. I'm going to hold this. It's going to be good. Enter Gideon, one of the judges. And if you haven't picked up on this theme yet, judges is full of broken people, like us. We're broken. We make mistakes. All of these judges make mistakes. Gideon makes a lot of mistakes. And the story picks up in Judges. The people are in Israel are doing, again, what is right in their own eyes. That's a very big theme running through Judges, is they're doing whatever they want. What sounds good, what feels good, let's do it. Let's worship Baal and a bunch of idols and see what happens. And then God raises up Gideon. He's a reluctant leader. He doesn't want to. He's afraid. He's anxious. He makes a bunch of excuses. God, like Moses, says, you're going to do it anyway because I'm telling you to. So Gideon does it. And you see this anxious man turn into a prideful, destructive man over the course of, I'm guessing, a couple years. Um, but you see him do, like, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with God and with angels turn in from this anxious guy who's afraid of doing anything to a guy who wants to do everything on his own and no longer acknowledges God. And then the cool thing is, is God still shows up in the midst of that story. He shows up in our brokenness. He shows up when we are doing stupid things, and he still finds a way to work through in and around us. And that's the kind of good news today, is even when we do the things that we shouldn't do, the things that distract us from God, he's still working in our lives. He hasn't given up on us. He doesn't abandon us. And that's the story of Judges. You see these broken heroes, these people that God raised up to bring peace but they didn't bring lasting peace. What we needed is Jesus. So that's what we're gonna get to today. We're gonna be in Judges 6, 13 through 27 is where we're gonna start and then we're gonna kind of bebop around. I just wanna say for those of you that are like time conscious, this is like the best Sunday for me to preach because I'm super fast. So there is silver lining all over this. So Judges 6, 13 through 27. It says, and Gideon said to him, please, and this is when God is calling Gideon and saying, get up and go. You're going to lead all these people and rout the Midianites, and it's going to be great. This is Gideon's response. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the, his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, I, do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put on a pot. And he brought them under the, under the uh, terebinth and presented them. And the angel of, the God, angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. 
Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But God said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there, and the Lord called it the Lord is peace. To this day still stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abizarites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of town to do it by day, he did it by night. So what isn't in these verses is we find Gideon beating grain in a wine press. A wine press is like a little silo kind of building. You usually beat grain outside, but he's doing it because he's hiding because the Midianites have scared him. So he's a scared little boy in a, a barn kind of beating grain and so they don't come and take it from him. And if you look at Gideon's first response, it tells us where his heart is. He says, um, and where are all his wonderful deeds back in verse 13 that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. There is no responsibility on his part for what the Israelites have done. They are worshiping Baal. The first thing God says is go tear this idol down. But his response when God calls him is God has forsaken us. Why should I do this? Where's God in all of this? All of these wonderful deeds that my forefathers told me about, they're not here. I don't believe any of this. Why should I do it? He blames God for their current state. It's not about what we've done. Forget the fact that we're worshiping, worshiping Baal over here. Why haven't you done anything? But the, the good news, even in these conversations where Gideon is kind of a weak, weak guy, is God ignores it. He just pulls right past the sarcasm, moves right past his, his lack of faith. And he says, go in this might of yours. This might that I'm going to give you, you're going to go anyway and you're going to do it. It's going to be great because I'm going to do it. He doesn't wait for Gideon to get, get it right. He just does it. God just does it through him. And then you have Gideon. We see he's still afraid, still anxious. He asks for a sign. How do I know that you're, you're from God? How do I know that you're actually who you say you are? So he, he waits for a sign to, and God endures this again. Like, he didn't need to sit here and wait. He's like, I've already told you. The angel could have just said, go. But he waits. He endures Gideon patiently, his unbelief. After Gideon finally figures it out, he asks for assurance, and God gives it to him. God says, go and destroy this altar that's in the center of your little town that your father built. So he does it, but he does it by night because he's afraid. He's afraid that the people, in which they do, they, they do threaten to kill him after this. They're afraid that, they're gonna, that he's going to get killed from all the people in the town. And that, I think, is further evidence of Israel as a whole, of their depravity. We see this, that they are willing to kill Gideon because he tore down an idol that is a false god. This is Israel. They should be the people of God following after God, but here they are trying to kill Gideon because he tore down an altar that worships a fake God. So this is kind of where we find Gideon. And if we jump a little bit ahead, 
in uh, chapter 6, 36 through 40. This is, I think, probably the most common story you hear about Gideon. I remember this as a kid. He throws out the fleece twice to test God. So we kind of see again his anxiety. God has called him. He said, take this army. We're going to destroy the Midianites. And he goes there with roughly 22,000 people. So he has a pretty large army. I mean, for a guy leading an army, that's, that's pretty legit back then. So he's probably, I would imagine, confident, ready to go, like God's going to take care of this. But you still see he's afraid. So 36 through 40. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying out a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And so it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me and let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and let the ground there, let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and there was, and all on the ground there was dew. I remember in college loving this story because if you are afraid of moving, this is the story for you because you want to just test God all night. Like, come on, God, give me a sign, give me a sign, give me a sign. Like, that's what we all want, isn't it? We want to know that we are standing in the will of God, that we are not going to move out of it, that we are not going to make a mistake, that nothing bad's ever going to happen to us. That's what Gideon wanted. There's a book I read. It's called Just Do Something. And that's, I think, the easiest way to find the will of God is to just do what you, after reading the Bible and talking, do what you think God is leading you to do. And as you are moving, like a ship, it's easier to turn a boat or a ship if it's moving. If you just move the rudder, it goes nowhere. So you have to be moving. Just do something. Is find where you think God is leading you. And if it's wrong, he's going to point you in another direction. I mean, Jonathan has talked about this. I think I've talked about it too. Like, this is not 10 years ago the idea of what we thought church would be for us. Like, 10 years ago, I was in seminary. I was training to become a pastor. And I was going to go lead a youth ministry and be at a church. And here I am as a teacher, and I love being here. Don't get me wrong. I love it here. Um, but it's not where we originally intended. Like Jonathan has said, he never anticipated being a preacher before, being a pastor. Like he was just happy in where he was. But God is moving him. In spite of himself, he is moving him. And that's what you see Gideon doing here is he's testing the fleece. He wants to know if he's in the right place. And then you see him do it again. It was as if the first sign wasn't enough. He has to ask God again. And I think, and looking at and researching this, I think what you see in his heart is a guy who wants to run. He's looking for any excuse to get out of this battle, any excuse to run from what God has called him to because maybe it's too scary. Uh, maybe he doesn't think he's going to win. He probably is anxious and doesn't trust God. And that leads us to the, to the first point, is no matter what we do, God isn't going to give up on us. He isn't going to abandon us. He isn't going to forsake us. You're not going to step out of bounds to a point where God is no longer with you. As a Christian, somebody who loves God and follows after him, he is guiding and directing you in such a way that you can't 
run away and get to a place where he is no longer going to try and push you back. And I think that's what we see in Judges, is you see the Israelites rebelling against God. They get a judge, and then God comes and puts a boundary, puts a judge back to draw them back, and they just keep running away like that lost sheep Jesus talked about. They just, God just keeps chasing after them and bringing them back into the fold. And you see all of these heroes, every single judge fails. They fail to bring peace. They fail to bring this lasting, fulfilling peace. But they all point to Jesus. Because a thousand years from now, they're gonna, God is going to send Jesus. And Jesus is going to usher in that ultimate final peace with God. That ultimate peace where sin is destroyed. And we can be with God forever through Jesus. Jesus is proof that we can trust God, that he fulfills his promises, and that he does what he says he's going to do. So that is anxious, anxious uh, Gideon. We're going to step in and see Gideon transform through this battle into somebody that is not anxious Gideon, but is power-hungry Gideon. Um, so let's look at 7, 2 through 7. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 7. This is a fun story because you see Gideon, he's standing on the precipice of battle, and then God whittles his army down. Say goodbye to your 22,000 confident heroes that are going to save the day. You're going to do it by my hand alone, is basically what God's going to say. So, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give you into the hands, to, for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So say goodbye to 12,000 people right there. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, and shall go shall go with you, and anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands and let all the others go every man to his home. So God says you have too many people. If all of these people go into battle, it's going to be on your own strength. So let's take away the majority of them. Let's, we can do this with 300. I can do this with 300. So through a series of these tests, God whittles down the weak men, the people that are afraid, they can go home. The people that aren't really focused on battle, that are bending over and taking their eyes off their surroundings, they can go home. So you have 300 people. Here's God testing Gideon. Are you going to go into this battle against what some scholars say could have been upwards of 120,000 people? <laughs> are you going to go into this battle with me? I think... A lot of times we want to test God. We want to say, if you do this, I will do this. We make like little mini transactions. If this happens perfectly, then I know that this is your will and I'm going to keep going. 
But if any mistakes happen, if anything goes out of our plan, out of our idea of control, we're not going to do it. Because it can't be God's will. Because God's will is perfect and everything's going to happen perfect because humans aren't broken and we don't do anything bad. We want it to be easy. We're getting in, tossing the fleece. We're placing restraints on what God can or will or will not do. But here God purposely eliminates all of those. All of those circumstances where Gideon could say, all right, if this works out, all these people here are like, sweet, let's go into battle. But Gideon, uh, God takes all of those away from Gideon. I think he's ramping up his, something that would trigger his fear and anxiety so that he can finally see what the power of God can do. So that's our second point, is we need to trust God to overcome our fears and anxieties. Anxiety in the moment causes hesitation. It causes a lack of trust. Um, and we need to trust God at his word. We need to believe what he's going to say. And the hard part is, is in the moment, I forget this. I forget that God is good. I forget that he's going to take care of me. I forget that he has taken care of me. Because in the moment, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like he is. But you have to hide this truth deep in your heart so that anytime this happens, you're ready to go. Like a trigger going off. You trust God. And that requires time, experience, seeing that God's going to show up, and just preaching the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Anytime these things that seem out of control happen, like today, God is good. He hasn't abandoned us. Just because the power abandoned us doesn't mean that God has. Just because something bad happens doesn't mean that God has just decided that everything you're doing is horrible and you need to go find something else to do with your life because it's awful. We just need to get to a place where we remind us that Jesus is still God. He is still good. He has still died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. All of that is evidence of a good God. It's evidence of a God that does not abandon you, that does not give up on us. And when we learn, when we experience God doing that and see that the truth that even in the midst of 2020, I'm standing here. Even in the midst of 2020, Kelly and I still have a job. Like, God hasn't abandoned us, and that doesn't mean to say that if you don't have a job, God hasn't abandoned you either. God is moving somewhere in your life. It just may not be where you want him to move. And I think another hard part that kind of stops us from seeing this truth is we can't will ourselves to believe this. Like, you can't just sit here and say, I'm going to believe it, I'm going to believe it, I'm going to believe it, I'm believe it. it. It doesn't work like that. You have to read the Bible. You have to meet with people that are Christians that love Jesus so that they can encourage you because this is hard. We are not meant to do life alone. Uh, we need people that love God, that love us, that push us to do things that are uncomfortable. Push us to do things that don't seem right. That sounds weird to say from the stage, but that maybe not to us, to our broken hearts. It doesn't seem like the right thing. Like this is too hard God's not pushing me in this direction, but we need somebody to come in our life and say, no, this is a good thing. What God is doing through you is a good thing. Just because it's hard and uncomfortable to go through the foster care system doesn't mean that I shouldn't adopt three, two, ki two kids. I can count two kids. I'm not adopting three. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it. Just because it's hard, just because nothing seems to work out the way it is, it doesn't mean that that's a bad thing to do. So we need to trust God and remind ourselves of his goodness in those moments where it seems like he is lost. 
where it seems like despair is taking over. And remember that God is good. Moving on, and I'm going to blow through seven and eight here a little bit. Um, but if we hit seven, 22 through uh, 24, this is where Gideon goes from that anxious guy. He's seen God work, and now he's like, I got this. So seven, 22 through 24. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah and toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Maloah and Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So there's Gideon, after the 300 did all this good stuff, he's like, let's get the other 22,000 or so back into this battle. So he calls them back in. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So at this point in the battle, it's like Gideon forgets that God said, go do it with 300. And he calls all these people back in and he's like, let's go get all of them right now. I got this. This battle is ours. So I don't need God anymore. This isn't God's design. God didn't say call the other ones back. He said, here's 300, you go figure this out. I got this, it's gonna be good. Gideon says, look what God did with 300, now I'm gonna do with 15,000, let's do this. So Gideon is taking his life, he's taking control back into his own hands. He's doing what he thinks is right in his own eyes. And after this happens, all of the depravity in chapter eight, it gets so much worse when he takes his life, his judgeship, his heroic acts into his own hands. And that's what happens in chapter eight is God isn't really involved other than a glib reference to the Lord ruling them. God isn't really involved in this. God hasn't sanctioned all that Gideon is about to do in chapter eight. At this point, the 300 was what God had told him to do. And then Gideon just does whatever he thinks is good. So you see this fearful man chase down two kings and he, he handles them very arbitrarily. He just does whatever he feels is right and as far as dealing with them. But then he brutally and horrifically really mistreats his own countrymen for what they did to him. Um, so he's becoming a judge not a, a judge in the sense of judges being like a hero, but like a judge like ruling over people and ending people's, it, he kills Israelites, um, to be blunt. Um, and we'll see some of that in 18, or 18, chapter eight, verses 13 through 14, and then 16 and 17, we're gonna skip through it a little bit. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So the town of Succoth and the town of Penuel, when Gideon was pursuing the Midianite kings, he walked through and said, hey, have you seen these guys? Have they been around? Have they been through here? And they said, we don't want anything to do with this. These are Israelite towns, but they didn't want to help. They said, we're out of this. Like you do whatever you do. I'm just going to sit here and you can go through, but we're not going to help you. 
so they don't help him. And Gideon, after he captures these two kings, he walks, down, he walks the kings back through these towns, says, look what I did. And then he pulls all the elders out of Succoth and he whips them. He's whipping Israelites because they didn't help him. He's not chasing Midianites anymore. He's not chasing Amalekites. He's punishing Israelites for not helping him. That's definitely not what God called him to do. And then he goes to Penuel, another Israelite city that refused to help him. He pulls out all of the men of the town and kills them. And then he destroys the tower. Because why not? You see Gideon is out of control. It's no longer about following God. It's about doing what he thinks is right. He's doing what's right in his own eyes. He's transformed from an anxious, fearful man to a prideful, arrogant man who's passing judgment on people. It reflects a man who doesn't trust God in his triumph. When things are good, it's no longer God's job. God hasn't done this. I've done this. Gideon is punishing his own countrymen. He's lustful for revenge. In his pride, he has appointed himself as one who passes judgment. He's called to save the Israelites from the Midianites, not to pass judgment on Israelites. We see the epitome of where he falls in chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, 22 through 27, the Israelites come to him. Now, little context before we jump into this. Deuteronomy 17 says uh, in a specific format, this is how you're going to pick a king. I'm going to pick a king. This is how we're going to anoint a king. These are the parameters for how this is going to happen. But that's not what happens here. The Israelites, then the men of Israel in 22 says, said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request to you, every one of you. Give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orpha, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So here our mighty judge falls. Gideon, at first blush, he says the right thing. It's really easy to say the right thing, but he does the opposite. He, they say, rule over us, be our king. He says, no, Lord's going to rule over you. But then he does the exact opposite of what he said. He says, bring me all of this gold, all of the spoil from your war, and give it to me. So tribute, paying tribute to a king, pretty common back then. Takes the gold and makes an idol out of it. He sa it says they made an ephod out of 1,700 shekels of gold. An ephod is like a cloak. And it's, um, I'm going to go English teacher on you for a second, but it, this is a synecdoche. A synecdoche is replacing the part for the whole. It's like saying sweet wheels, bro, but they're driving a car. So you're talking about the car and how awesome it is, but you're talking about the wheels. 
and he's making an ephod, but this is really an altar to Baal. He is, he tore down an altar and now he's put the altar back up, but it looks prettier because it's got a gold cloak on it. And not only that, but he takes all of the gold, all of the things that he got from the Midianites, from the Midianite kings, and he takes it for his own possession. So all of these signs of a king are now Gideon's sign of a king. So they have paid him tribute and he has collected taxes and uh, thanks to God for all that he's done in the land is absent. All the praise and honor is bestowed on Gideon. Gideon, our king, his actions betray his words. He requests a symbolic uh, gesture of submission and they submit to him willingly. And he takes the signs of a king, a purple robe, the gold, the necks, uh, the amulets that went on the camel's necks, and he sits as king for the next 40 years. The representative of God has forgotten God and led them to do what is right in their own eyes because it says that they hoard after this idol, this ephod, they hoard after it. That's a really graphic term. They're all worshiping Baal together. Gideon has appointed cult worship of an idol Instead of leading the people back to God, he has led them to Baal again. He's gone back and does, does what he was doing in the beginning, worshiping Baal. But the good news here, and I've beat Gideon to a pulp, but the good news is that God is still present in all of this. God has used this trash bag of a man to bring peace to Israel for 40 years. This man who did all of these awful things that I just got done telling you about, God still works through him. God still brings the entire land of Israel peace throughout his lifetime. So even in the midst of Gideon's brokenness, his depravity, God is present. God is moving. And God is doing all that he promised to do in spite of Gideon messing it up. So if you think you can step outside of God's will, watch Gideon. Because he just did a whole bunch of things that I think would be stepping out of God's will. But God is still present. He has not abandoned the Israelites. So that leads us to our last point, is we need to follow after God and trust his leadership. Gideon assumed his own leadership role. He wasn't looking to God and trying to follow after God. And the issue here is pride. Pride is destructive. And we all, in one way or another, struggle with this. We think we can fix ourselves. We think that we can put on our boots, go to work, fix our sin in one day, and it'll be great. The problem is, is that's not trusting God. We need God to fix us. We need him to lead our lives. Um, a similar phrase I hear so often, and I don't want to beat this phrase up, um, but I think the ultimate end of it is the destructive part. It's you do you. I hear it all the time. And it sounds really good because the point is inclusiveness. The point is accepting people and um, not trying to control people. And that's great. Um, that little idea of it is, is fine. But the problem is, is our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts point us to do awful and terrible things like Gideon. Like all of this, like he probably thought it was great. I'm killing all these Midianites. I'm saving the people, just letting them worship Baal at the same time. And I'm being a little mini king and it can't be that bad. But our hearts are deceitful. We can convince ourselves that anything is true and make it sound right. I'm really good at telling myself I need something. 
which I'm really good at it. I can convince myself so much that I have to get it because if I don't get it, I'm not gonna be doing what I think I should be doing. It's crazy how easy it is to tell yourself that, or convince yourself to do something, even something that seems right. Um, my, one of my favorite quotes from Yoda, gotta throw Star Wars in there, is uh, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. And that is a slippery slope, just like our hearts. They are a slippery slope that lead us to destruction. But if we can learn how to follow God, God is the one who breaks the chains, who breaks the cycle of sin, who calls us to follow after him. And when we follow him, we avoid the pit of despair um, that Gideon fell into. Paul said it best in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's driving purpose, his focus is to follow after God. So much so that Christ consumes his life, that he, is, he views himself as, con, as crucified with Christ. It is this driving epicenter of his life that Jesus rests in the middle. And when Jesus is at the center, when we're following him that closely, the rest falls into place. If we're following after God, he's not gonna lead us in a place we shouldn't be. And he's definitely going to push us in the right direction because we're not following after whatever X is. We're following after what Jesus is calling us to do. We're following after him and trying to love people more. It's hard to do wrong when you're trying to love other people. The problem is we're not very good at it. Um, God is calling us into this intimate communion with him and with others. And it's through community, through Christ, uh, together with him and each other that we are drawn closer to him. I mean, we see this good grace and it reflects our good God. Um, God is patiently enduring our mistakes. He's patiently enduring our failures because he's calling us to himself. He is cleansing us one day, one mistake, one step, one failure at a time. So our bottom line is no matter what we do, God isn't gonna give up on us. And we need to trust God to overcome our fear and anxiety and follow after him and trust in his leadership. So the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do? Um, how do we apply this knowledge to our life? So we're gonna jump to the New Testament and um, in Romans. Romans 6, one through four says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That is true today for you and for me. We are walking in newness of life. We are walking with Christ. When we're following after him, it's, we're not doing it alone. We're walking in newness of life with him. And if we look at Romans 5.20, and I, this is one of the verses that I cling to um, because I think it's so exciting and I love bouncy balls. Um, Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. When you look at the Greek word, and I'm not, it, it, it means super abounded. So I said I like bouncy balls. You throw a bouncy ball down really hard and it shoots up like three or four times its height. And that's what this is, is where, great, where sin abounds, grace super abounds way over it. So that our cup 
never runs empty. God's grace never runs out. It is always greater than your sin. It's greater than your failures, greater than your mistakes. You can't do enough to outrun that. So going with that, the, the question is, but sin, it's still present in my life. What am I supposed to do with all of these mistakes that I've made? Sin is still here. I make mistakes. I'm assuming you make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We all do stupid stuff. And I look back, I'm like, why did I just treat my kids like that? I don't know. It just came out of me. We give sin power over our lives. We feed the beast. The more we do, it's like we're digging a rut and we get stuck in this rut because we keep letting it happen. So we need Jesus to break the chains. Colossians 3.2, I think, gives us probably the best way to focus on Jesus. It says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We are, I am so distracted. I am so consumed by trivial things that mean nothing. I mean, you look at Facebook and you see evidence of this all across the country where every little thing frustrates and causes fear and anxiety and it just feels like the world is gonna explode, like it's out of control. But what we need to do is focus on Jesus. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to see him in the minute everyday details of our life because he is so invested in us so invested in our future, he's not gonna lead us astray. We focus on things that don't matter, that's when we get caught in sin. So we need to focus on Jesus to set our mind on things that are above. That is a active thing that you have to do. It's not passive, something that happens when you sit down. You have to actively set your mind on things that are above and force yourself not to focus on those things that are below. And that's simple, like things that we just don't do, reading our Bible, praying, going to community group, coming to church. Like there, there's nothing magical about what I'm trying to say. It's just things that we, we need to do and we don't. Um, things I don't do and I need to do. Um, so concluding, the good news is God hasn't given up on you. Jesus in John 8:12 said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We need to abide in Christ. He is the Messiah. He came to save us. He is the cure. We're not going to fix ourselves. He's going to fix us. That's what the Spirit's job is when he ministers to us. Abiding is the cure. Being in the light. So let me pray.